All right, you're listening to the Inspirational Insights, Insights to Action podcast. My name is Donna Jones, and I am really excited to have two CEOs of two different tech apps. Both are aimed at improving the quality of decision-making that we apply both personally and all the way up to the global level. I'm going to let them introduce themselves, but the reason why we're having this conversation is because my hunch is that there's a lot of insights to be gained. Neither one of these two know each other except for the last two minutes, and that makes it all the more lovely to just jump on and explore. So I'm going to turn to Sushant Zaganapur from Sway. I met Sushant when we were going over to the Global Challenges Foundation in Stockholm in 2018, where you won 600,000 USD from that conversation around shifting global governance. Also on the call, we have Kelly Max with Solve, both are cellular entrepreneurs. What I want to do is start with just going into what was the inspiration for what you're doing now and the journey that you've taken? What have you learned so far from <laughs> what you've been up to? So Sushant, go, go ahead and start off if you don't mind. Do you have a couple hours? Yeah, I No, thanks add for two more. We need four yeah, hours. Add four and beers and, and scotch and all that. Thanks for having me and for doing these uh, discussions. I think it's really helpful to get lessons out to the wider world through this medium. So I founded Sway. Uh, Sway is a bottom-up idea management and decision-making platform. It's really meant to help people surface hidden ideas and hidden voices and turn those into organizational change through a bottom-up methodology, through a merit-based methodology. The reason I came up with it was because I lived through the problem myself. I was running a center in Oxford. I had a pretty large budget to, to manage. I was in charge of the strategy and operations. And when it came time to consequential budgeting decisions, annual reviews, a lot of the decisions were pre-made in Palo Alto, where our headquarters of our foundation was. The executives would fly in and we'd have some ceremonial team alignment thing, but effectively 90% of the major decisions were made and, and we would implement those without much in the way of deliberation, a discussion, a kind of cognitive diversity going into designing those solutions. The first year that this happened, I, I watched what unfolded and two things happened. One, the quality of the outcomes were very poor for the decisions that we'd chosen to, the strategies that we'd chosen to implement and invest in. And two, most of our staff felt extremely demoralized through this process. So there I was effectively in charge of this process in some ways or having some say in it without really a say. And I thought to myself, how could this have been done differently? How could we have re-engineered this to not meet those two really bad outcomes, both in terms of performance and in terms of human capital loss? I got obsessed with, with this idea. This kind of took off in my mind and I started to combine different methodologies and technologies together to see if we could do something differently. Here we are three years later. We have a working platform that is trying to do just that. I'll spare the details of what we've learned and the ups and downs for a little while and just give you a little appetizer for now. And Kelly, you, you jump in and we can pick up from there. Sure. Thanks. Super interesting. Kelly Max, uh, founder of Solve. Our third name of the company, we started with decision-making as the problem and we pivoted a few times. We're a very data-driven company. And it really started, I was running Hoff. USA and global product innovation for a large German-based talent management and recruiting. 
enterprise software company, family owned, and our Lighthouse projects were the Leadership 2020 transformation of Daimler, designing and architecting a new people operating system from performance management, feedback systems, et cetera, like best fit placement. And then the second one was re-architecting and designing Nike's entire recruiting landscape from career site to talent acquisition strategies, the supporting tools, ATS, TRM, and the way that they interact and integrate within the workforce and within the market. And there was Swisscom also. The basis for me actually going into decision-making was we had these big, big visions together with the clients. We were the, the small vendor, the David against Goliath. So Goliath would be SAP, Workday, Oracle, IBM, and then also the big consulting firms. We were a small vendor from St. Gallen, Switzerland, headquartered there. For many years, we tested how to bring new organizational models, workplace democracy, elected leaders, democratic decision-making into companies. They were interested in us because we were very different than the rest. And, and we were able to show that we can build software that actually fulfills these new processes. When you think a little bit back five years, like digital transformation was like, it was this hot phase where everybody had to say, okay, we got to transform. What really bothered me, we went into these projects like Daimler, Nike, Swisscom, and we had these big visions and we never got there. I mean, Daimler, it was literally 150 internal leadership selected people that were on this project. And I feel three years in, four years in, it was like 10% of what we set out to do was achieved. I really had to ask myself as a leading figure in this, I had to ask myself, why is that? What is the problem? And so I started a research sprint. I took a team of the company and I said, let's go out and let's ask what the biggest issue is in digital transformation and why these projects most likely never succeed. There were responses from disengagement with leadership, like decisions made in the glass tower, toxic individuals that you still carry around in key leadership positions, but they were basically great 10 years ago and saved the company's butt if you want. And now they're still in that position, but they don't belong there anymore. There were, you know, many things like strategy, disengagement, communication strategy. And I felt all of these things I've heard a hundred times. And I feel there were a lot of companies that were catering towards those, but there were a few trends in these responses that I felt they're interesting. And one was decision-making in general. It takes too long. People don't know how to navigate the organization. It's intransparent. We involve the wrong people. We don't involve the right people. And I felt like there's no solution out there. And Suja, I didn't know Sway then or when, what the state was, but there's no solution out there that really technologically caters to this. Everything that I could find was McKinsey, Harvard, 12-step theoretical programs that again lead to a transformation program. I said, that's nonsense. I said, let's go deep. So I went into decision science from bias elimination to your structured approach to feedback loops, looking back at the decision after a certain time when you wanted to achieve the outcome, sourcing peer advice, not too much, not too I basically took the principles or quick step in between was I said, hey, board, I'm onto something. We interviewed 50 companies from Facebook to Google to small mom and pop shops and all types of roles. And I think I can see a trend line that there's a huge problem that might not be recognized yet but that is actually happening and what is actually hindering us from being faster, more productive, more efficient, and more effective. And so I pitched it. The board said, Kelly, we want to focus on the DAC market. I was the CEO of the US and I said, you know what, guys, it's seven years later since I started. It's too good. I'm going to do it myself. 
interestingly enough, I got heavily funded from the, my chairman, my CEO, and the company after I left, but they didn't want to fund it in the company. But that's another story. That's the beer story later. But, but that was the beginning of it all. And so we started going out and applying these principles and say, could we actually make decision-making as easy as browsing Instagram? Could we make decisions and problems transparent amongst peers, source micro-advice, like five to 10 perspectives, which then creates transparency for everybody knowing what I'm personally working on. And on the other side, it allows me to eliminate my bias. And then we populate the decision that's being made based on best practice decision-making with a date that says, please remind me to review that position and that decision and everybody that it affected to review it and then start creating an intelligence that over time adapts to the very specific organization that it's running in and making suggestions and helping along where the pitfalls are and where the opportunities lie based on that type of organization. I'll leave it there for now. We pivoted. We're now a social platform in the consumer space, and I'll, I'll talk about that. But that was my beginning journey into decision-making, and I feel very connected with you, Sush, because everything that you said, I felt internally as well, but I saw it in these massive transformation projects where millions are spent and wasted, and morale is wasted, and cultural efficiency is wasted. Yeah. Wow. Just wow. Donna, you're like, when she connected us, I'm like, how does Clubhouse relate to Sway? Because from what I see <laughs> on what you're building, it's, it almost seems like a competitor, a nicer, more holistic competitor to Clubhouse. I had no idea what was underneath the tip of this iceberg. I think you should liquidate from solve and come join sway we should have and seriously have some offline conversations i think there's a there's an article to write together about the problem you don't know you have i love um, that I'm maybe happy you have to, to help with that all of us all of us yes yeah. uh, we just had two articles published in emergence magazine on companies that have completely revised their business model yeah. and the other one was rosh sweden's transformation yeah so that would be a lot of fun needless to say and exactly what i was hoping for is happening so i'm delighted to hear that from you Sush, so <laughs> and speaking of that i'll do a quick intro into the emergence magazine business agility magazine and then we'll go back to kelly the Business Agility Institute is dedicated to sharing stories that profile business agility, meaning the, the freedom, the flexibility, and the resilience to achieve the purpose of a business. Emergence Magazine is a premium publication published four times a year, including exclusive stories by great thinkers and practitioners worldwide. Head to the businessagility.institute and look for the Emergence Magazine. Use the code D-A-W-N-A, -A, my first name, Donna, and you'll get 10% off the subscription. Let me go really quick to the pivot because I think that actually phrases a problem that why we actually pivoted, if, if that's okay. okay. Because I think you can, yeah. you can build on that. When we started testing, we built an app and it was functioning great. The performance was great. It was alpha. It was not a full beta, but it was alpha. It had the core process. And we actually were able to acquire pilots, actual companies that were starting to use it. We didn't see the engagement that we were thinking we would get. And we started looking at the data and we started speaking to the users and we're like, hey, what's the problem? And they said, really the, the core gist of it is, was Kelly, your app requires so much forward thinking culture and transparency. We're not ready to share as transparently within the organization. New work is great on stage at the HR tech conference, but really it's not happening in-house. We still love power. 
We still love hierarchy. That's my interpretation, but basically they said the same thing. I said, okay, if we only can get maybe 0.2% of all companies out there because they're really living new work, then there's no business model for us. So I said, well, but in general, you like it. They said, yes, I love the process. And I love the question-based approach because every problem and challenge or decision starts with a question, but I would rather like to source outside perspectives. I would love to leave my corporate bubble and source outside perspectives from experts to eliminate my bias. We're like, okay, that's interesting. We rewrote the app slightly and we said, okay, could we tap into people's LinkedIn connections and source match profiles that actually have something to contribute to that specific problem or challenge. Now you get into data privacy and, and, and all that stuff in regards to the company or IP information from the company. The interesting thing was that was a win. Now, and this might be helpful for you, Sush, but you might have figured that out already. The other big piece was that we were always too late in the decision-making process because we called it a decision-making app. And when you think about what we would have to build we would have to build a platform with 10 plugins into Slack, Teams, email. Like we would have had to get the starting point of the decision through plugins in the apps that people use in their organizations already. We said, we're probably phrasing this wrong. If we think about what a decision is, it's the end point, not the starting point where the problem arises. It's the end point of a problem-solving journey. So what's the starting point of a problem-solving journey? And it was the question. Somebody has a question, says, how do, I, how do we do this thing X, Y, Z? We said, how can we get that trigger point and that starting point of a decision-making journey and have a meaningful connection in people's minds, then use Zyder and put the decision proposal into Zyder? That was also a win. Then we got another problem, which was if we're now sourcing from outside and our customer becomes the individual and not the organization, we're in front of a pivot because whenever you change a problem or you change the customer, it's a true pivot. Otherwise you're iterating on the solution. We have to pivot. And we did, we said, we'll test this heavily. The problem then was how can I trust that person? Because it was all text-based. There was no voice video or anything. It was all text-based. As we tested sourcing outside micro perspectives, people were skeptical about the perspective that they got where they didn't know the people. So they said, now I have to go back to LinkedIn. I have to research them again. It's not a clean enough solution. Right when Clubhouse came around end of last year or mid last year, but end of last year, I got aware of what it was. The moment I went on the app, it clicked to me that audio is that format of the future where you can create trust with somebody without vanities and can relate to somebody in a short conversation a lot faster. Long story short, with that, we then said, okay, how do we fit that into people's pocket? How can we help people answer their questions through micro advice, through a conversation? And could we actually scale this so that the entire world can benefit from it? And through many, many more steps, but when we, we've found the format, always 15 minutes, we have timed speaker segments. What I do right now, talk a long time could not happen on Solve because you have time speaker segments to get equal speaking voice and full diversity on the specific question. We then said, okay, it's a consumer product. We can't make it a decision-making tool. It has to be social. People need to understand what it is, podcasting, um, because it's recorded, it's transcribed. Everybody can listen to it later. And it basically gives a voice, as you said, 
to everyone. It gives an opportunity to have a voice in everyone because everybody's an expert for someone in the right mm -hmm. context. Now we're becoming a matching platform on top. But that was the pivot and how we got there. And I'm curious what you have to say to the problems we ran into. Oh, my head is just racing. Very interesting pivots. Sounds like quite the journey you guys have gone on. I can relate to their headwinds, I think, that we faced as well. There were very early headwinds, very early friction points that I didn't think technology would solve by any stretch. But the technology is ready for enabling an inclusive, participatory, bottom-up philosophy to management or to running an organization. It's that our culture is very much in the way of that. There are some myths and there are some realities of the chaos of engaging or getting involved in something quite participatory. Our political sort of experiments so far have shown that crowds that are full of resentment can act in kind of irrational ways or self-defeating ways with the choices that they make. People see this and they say, well, how can I trust the average person to make a very smart decision on something quite consequential for our company? Why should I ask the junior people that don't have a voice if these are the types of things that they're going to gripe about? So this is a myth and a reality that I think we, we need to deal with. Technology alone isn't going to solve that. The way we came across this reality, we were starting to build sway while I was in Singularity University in Mountain View in 2016. That time was the rise of the mainstreaming of crypto and all the DAOs that were bubbling up and the first DAO that was created kind of imploded. And most importantly, all the, the token offerings. There were a couple of really interesting companies that were prepared to bring on, you know, the IPO or ICO, whatever it was called at the time, and distribute decision-making rights to these token holders. And so what did we do? We interviewed 40 of them from our dorm room in Singularity while we were building this tool asking them like, okay, cool, you're distributing these rights, you're giving people a share of the company. How do those rights translate into decision-making authority on the future strategic roadmap, feature choices, partnership decisions, you know, policy decisions of your company? They're like the most progressive libertarian type of people that like they can't, they don't have a say on those things. In fact, many of them don't even want to say they, they prefer to delegate those decisions back to us. I saw two things. One, there was a mistrust that this swarm, however culturally and values aligned they were, could co-opt the direction of the organization and move it in some way. That is a natural hesitation of leaders. It's a human reaction and instinct that we need to deal with and learn from. In addition to the mistrust, there was this reliance on representation and not seeing the, the structural issues that introducing a representative model creates. That for me was like, okay, we have a bigger problem here. It's not a matter of just, here's an app, it'll solve your problems. It's you have to educate people on what is the problem at the moment and what are the potential benefits of trying this other approach. What we've learned is to make a very long three-year story of banging our heads up against the wall, pilot after pilot, implementation after implementation, is we thought we had a very elegant solution to this issue. It gave the decision-maker sufficient rights and autonomy 
while providing the user the right set of incentives over and above the existing tools they had to express their idea. We didn't integrate with Slack and make those things easy. We, we actually made it clunky just to test a lot of our core assumptions. Would people actually go to a separate platform and sign up without SSO? Would they deal with an alpha that doesn't look great? All this sort of stuff to have their voice heard, right? And we found that, in fact, they, they did. They would do it for intrinsic reasons, not for gamification and other stuff. But where we hit huge roadblocks was two areas. One, when the question being asked was way too broad for there to be a valuable answer resulting from crowdsourcing. You might just say, how might we make the company a better place to work? You're yeah. going to get a lot of bullshit. Yeah. If you ask the question, how might we improve NPS from seven to nine, what are the best ideas? And I only want ideas that could be tested in 60 days. You're going to get a lot more refined solutions from wherever they come from because people have constraints and boundaries to work with. That was a huge learning for us. The second huge learning was trying to implement this across the whole organization meant that you had to culturally upgrade everybody. That's not how organizations are. There are people inside a company that are very culturally advanced that run a certain department or team. There are others that are, for lack of a better analogy, stuck in the 1960s and 70s or 80s who thrive off of hierarchy and their positions of power, heuristics that are hard to shed. And they're not going to get with this program. We've seen the resistance to it in our pilots. The huge pivot on our side was to stop trying to sell directly into enterprise, or onboard the enterprise, going through the CEO. We reskinned our platform to be team-based and to allow teams to come on board step-by-step step to create an enterprise experience, but starts with a small team. Initially, our, our medium of of intelligence exchange was a proposal. Everyone writes a proposal and they go through a structured way and our AI helps them write a better thing, but they have to put their ideas into a proposal. What we realized is like, that's almost too late. When people have a, something to write about, it's too far down that journey of a problem being solved. You need to catch them early on. You need to encourage them to have anonymous discussions. You need to give them opportunities to poll everybody anonymously. You need to let them do brainstorm sessions anonymously. So it added a bunch of mm. layers into the platform that eventually lead to proposals and metrics and decision-making workflow. All these new features are coming out later in September. Anyways, it's been a long journey, but I'm, I'm just feel very grateful that I've learned so much about this through the process and how naive I was initially totally. starting off with, with the idea. I feel you. Uh, I love how, when I hear your journey, where your data took you, the fact that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, all, it still starts with a question, but you're basically saying we're sourcing ideas for the big problems. And by getting people to contribute with ideas, you're capturing the beginning of the decision-making journey for the yeah. right solution. And for us, it was, we were at that, like the idea at the anonymity, we have a lot of similar learnings. I think the drive probably where we went into different directions, still trying to solve 
macro, same problem, right? It's help people make better decisions was probably our personal drivers and our focus. I always say where focus goes, energy flows, and you were committed to solving that for companies. And I said, I want to have the biggest impact in the world. Now, suddenly we're looking at the results different. We're saying, how can we get to here? And you're saying, how can we get to the biggest impact within corporations? And I'm saying, how can we get to the biggest impact in an individual, right? Yeah, that's a really helpful clarification. I'd like to just give you a little bit of insight of where the fire and the, the energy and the sort of direction came from. The reason Donna and I met, we met at a global governance competition about how do we upgrade democracy. For me, it wasn't like, okay, there's a bunch of dinosaur organizations that have dinosaur cultures that are facing the same kinds of things I am. That wasn't super exciting. That was interesting because I could make a hunch about this. But where it became very clear was the replicability of what I'd experienced at a small scale happening at a larger scale in our democracies. I saw this as a structural problem that just had different magnitudes of scale applied to them. The light bulb went off. This is a paradigm problem. This is not about leadership. This is a structure that we need to graduate out of. Our entire cultural, technological, uh, and social architecture has been upgraded. It don't fit the giant anymore. We've outgrown them. Every aspect of our life is bespoke and curated and personalized, except for the major decisions in our lives at work or in the societies we live in. Corporations for me are, or companies in that sense are the testing ground for implementing this inside cities. For me, seeing a, a day where an idea meritocracy replaces the need for politicians was the driver. That's why we won the, the challenge. That's why we, we got the funding. We see a world where we upgrade past the existing model. I think it's 10 years away. Yeah. We have a solve on how to revolutionize democracy and make it work for the 21st century. You should listen to it. It's 15 minutes and there's so much to talk about. Maybe a solve can help facilitate and curate some of these conversations. Super, super interesting. Thanks for sharing all of this. I really appreciate it. A little sidebar from Donna here. Uh, Kelly provided the link for how to revolutionize democracy. And he's also provided a link for more information on Solve. I'll put them in the show notes as well. Now I want to ask you both and weigh in whatever way you want. Both apps are moving into a context that's pretty dynamic, definitely complex, and certainly far more unpredictable than ever before in history. What do you see is the state of decision-making today and how can what you're working on make it easier? One of the things I noticed initially when I was going into tech myself, looking at exploring tech for solving particular things around mental health and so forth, is that people rely, start relying on it instead of using their own faculties. They, they decide the tech's gonna solve the problem. It's an approach you use when you're overwhelmed and you've taken yourself offline for whatever reason. So that's the background to the question. What do you see ahead? in terms of where this is going? I think five years from now, at the pace of technological development and the, the level of ubiquity of personalized assistance in our lives, Amazon, Alexa's, Siri, data tracking of our health and other sorts of footprints that we leave behind, it's not implausible to think that we may have AI avatars, avatars that are empowered enough in certain technological environments or apps or whatever to make decisions on our behalf, like low level, low consequence decisions that are administrative in nature. 
I think decision support will probably be a very useful thing in five years from now, given the pace at which life will move. I think where we need to be wary is how, like what biases and what assumptions those models use to build a heuristic of us and whether they give you sufficient agency to undo or intervene in some of those decisions. We've designed Sway in a completely different way. We don't want to take all the data and plunk it into a machine learning algorithm and tell you what the best three decisions might be. We think that a decision-making committee can still do that in a transparent way and it, it helps them flex their creativity and bring other inputs in. We use technology at the service of that. We use technology to upgrade the way people express their ideas, to help them find biases in their own writing so that they're not uh, impaired in front of other people. We add evidence to their writing so that it looks stronger. Yeah, that's where I see incremental steps forward. I can answer that now that I'm more on the consumer side from a more societal standpoint, piggybacking a little bit on your AI your comment that you mentioned. I think as an individual, I think the biggest problem that what I mentioned earlier about the trust, how can I trust a perspective? I think that the biggest issue for AI and robotics, like humanoid robotics and, and machines answering questions will be, how can I trust that? I think the more and more technologically advanced we will get, the more and more humans will tend to ask, can I trust that? So for me, the big vision of Solve, and I hope that I can impact the world in the next five years, how we make decisions. But for me, the biggest thing was when we designed the new format was to find a structure and a feedback loop, a community-based feedback loop of everybody who's listening, who can clip their favorite insights of whatever they heard in that Solve. That way we get stacked data feedback that actually tells us where the biggest areas of social intelligence, intelligence lie. When we talk about social intelligence, we talk about street smarts. And the smarter that the machines get through a lot of coded intelligence and then also self-developed intelligence, the more we want to, we're screaming for equal voices and having everybody heard, our goal is to create that largest database of social intelligence that you can tap into through a semantic search and through recommendations. I hope that we get to the point we're fighting hard to capture that data set and then infiltrate and counterbalance AI. If we can, so if you have AI and you want to check if this is in sync with what humanity would have done, and we use social SQ data, what we call it, you use SQ data to counterbalance it. We now have this merger of artificial intelligence and human intelligence actually creating something much bigger. That's where I'm seeing maybe five years is a little early, but five to 10 years, I think we'll have a first step. That's where I'm focused on is actually on the counter side, not because I don't like or don't appreciate AI, but because I think it will come with a lot of problems that is against the human nature. If we can be that force that helps you trust AI more and can be that counterbalance, I think there's a huge opportunity for us and something that people will want to need and especially take it a hundred years from now. I know that's now a far stretch, but what would people have done and said, and how would they have decided in 2021? So let's assume it's hundred years from now. I think being able to tap into human consciousness on a timestamp uh, and find trends and 
cross-check where we were, not to hinder progress, but to actually to stay more human as we keep becoming more digital. That's where I see and where I want to help shape this world. It's a big goal. I was never afraid of big visions. Yeah, that's where I see this going. And, and I think where you're working on Sush and on the corporate level and also the governance level, it's so needed and it's so good. I'm glad that somebody's figured out a better way to solve that specific area and, and, and really keep driving that. Going back to the quality of decisions being made, in today's world, where do, do these models fit into the existing status quo? Look at Afghanistan and the decision there. I mean, for one step, just remove the general population and their opinions about how that might have been done differently. There were many people with much higher pay grade than myself that have a vested interest and deep knowledge about the operation for the past 20 years that had no say in this decision. And it's, again, it's a reflection of the, the hippo complex, the, the highest paid person's opinion influencing the end outcome. We need efficiency. We're not gonna depart ways from that. We can't have a kumbaya democracy for everything, but we need cognitive diversity and alternatives on the same table so that we make the best choices, unless there's some nefarious interests involved. Parking that for a second, saying people have the, the best interest in mind to make a smart choice. Implementing technologies or systems like Sway inside those really high consequence decisions is a no-brainer for me in today's world. I think that we're gonna to get to a stage where the volume of scandals and the volume of confused outcomes resulting from these decisions, like lack of understanding of what went into them, will lead people to start looking for alternatives. I hope they start shadowing these decisions online to show what else could have been possible, what crowds could come up with that may appear better than the ones that we've, we've selected from. That's, I think, a near-term reality that I think we can get to. Both of you know that I've been working in the decision-making arena for quite some time now, and when I observed what was going on in Afghanistan, you can pretty much list off all of the biases that were at play. And when you combine it with the work of Teo Dawson on complexity and the level of executive capacity to work with complexity, there's a big gap there, easily known as the complexity gap. These decisions are not simple, and yet often they're treated as if they are. They're extremely complex. There's lots of moving parts, very high stakes decisions. So it requires this very delicate, preferably conscious blend of intuition and data. It also requires an understanding that distributed decision making so that you can benefit from the on the ground intel, because those people know what's going on better than anybody else. They're the ones that actually are fluent with the volatility of the conditions. That's where you can really gain from a distributed approach. The minute you have centralized decision-making, you compromise the value and negatively impact what's going on the ground because you can't see it, you can't feel it, you can't see it and you can't feel it. So let's look at the intuition side of it, particularly since entrepreneurs rely upon their intuition. We've got a bit of a dependency on data. Where does, your, where does the instinct for what's next or for what those pivots are made of come from? And where do you see it playing out in, in combination with the app? I think, to be honest, I think intuition is everything. It's everything and nothing. What I mean by that is 
people always act from out of their context. Whenever I come across somebody, I'm always curious about where does the person come from? How did they got raised? What's the environment? Who do they speak with? What bubble are they in? Bubbles were a big topic for us to figure out. I think intuition is driven by, because it's my subconscious, basically speaking to myself and saying, here is something that I know, or here's a feeling that I have that I should go for. I think people don't have the right tools to understand it and to unpack it. And also be okay that if they unpack it and they find that it might be biased, but people usually don't say, oh, I'm very biased there. That's not what's happening, right? So what I'm trying to do is try to create an awareness and say, isn't it better to have diverse conversations with a diverse group of people on your challenge, help you to be vulnerable without being vulnerable because we're putting your focus on the content that you're producing that creates better personal brand for you and better professional brand for you. We're getting people to talk in 15 minutes from all ethnicities and ages and, and wherever they come from and start breaking out their bubble in 15 minutes on a very specific problem that everybody has, no matter in which bubble they live and in which age they are. On some of these questions, it's fascinating to see if we would say this is your vulnerability platform or this is your intuition cross-check platform, it wouldn't work. The way that we had to design it, we had to say, hey, in order to get to that conversation, what can we offer the user or the, the community to say, I'm doing this for what I get out of it, which is personal brand. I get a voice. I feel good, right? I, I help the world. I'm paying it forward. We can go through all the human needs from love and connection to contribution. We're firing on all cylinders on these needs. But really what creates that intuition gut check or that, that cross check is that conversation. And so to that question, I think I had intuitions and that were mostly they're right. I just don't know how to navigate on them. And so what I love about that is solve offers. And I don't want to do solve promotions, like the concept of it offers by you sharing your problem or sharing your challenge or a topic that you're aware of and an expert on and other people responding to it, you're automatically cross-checking where your intuition is coming from, which at the end ends up in bias. If we can take that away, I think you will be able to trust your intuition faster or change your decision on which way to go. It's almost unfair to say that we're focusing on what can they get out of it to get them to start talking and to get them to start talking quickly and fast and not over the course of months and years when change was needed now. That's my response to what that word triggered for me and how I know we are going about it and, and how I think we have to go about it in the current construct. I think change has to come from within and it has to come almost like nobody knows that it's happening, but we're slowly changing. If you force change up front and say, hey, you have to change, it always creates resistance. Nobody wants to change. But if it's something that's an opportunity, oh, my life could be better here and my life could be a little bit better here. And if we can get that done on a large scale in our society, in a very well thought and humane way, I think, yeah, I think we'll, we can really get to a better place. The question of intuition for me, I read it a little bit differently. I think about decisions and the role of intuition. I, I see them as masked bias or conclusion shopping for an outcome that you already want. In some cases, you're right about that. Your intuition is strong, comes from a different place. In other places, they're, they're just biases doing their, their best to mask themselves. You got to think about where are people likely to benefit and be open to other people's perspectives around 
a choice they're making. And it's usually like high consequence, high to undo, high cost, high degree of variability uh, and complexity types of decisions. So should I change my career? Should I become a monk? Should I move to this country? Should I, should I, should I, should I, right? Those are the places where whatever format is in, whether it's something like solve or something like as boring as a proposal, uh, it's finding that person that's about to make a very high consequence decision and wants multiple perspectives. They may still use those perspectives to conclusion shop on whatever intuition they've had. Or if perspectives are rich enough and presented well enough, I think they can have a fundamental impact on people's and choice. And that's really what we're hoping to do this way. I love the word mass bias and conclusion shopping. I will definitely uh, use that in my next conversation. You're very, very welcome to. Lots of good snippets there. I want to thank you both very much for just jumping in on this conversation. Both of you are global citizens, which brings a lot of experience and wider perspective and the capacity to move to different lenses. That's incredibly valuable at this time. Interestingly enough, you both live in Vancouver, just not the same Vancouver. So <laughs> Vancouver, Washington and Vancouver, BC, Canada. Any particular stories you'd like to share before we close up? I used to live in the UAE for five years and had a environmental and sustainability impact advisory practice there. Did some work with cultural agencies, did some work with, with multinationals and others there. Just prior to this, Kelly was mentioning he had some business out there and we knew of a, of a shared contact in the sheikh there. That was interesting. <laughs> it's a, a falcon, a sword, an ambassador. There's a lot to tell here. Maybe we'll record a, a 15 minute beer conversation and we can add it as a snippet on that. That point. would be cool. You're yeah, on. We will definitely do that. You can expect to hear back from me on that. <laughs> that would be yeah. lovely. Anything else you want to say before we close off? Yes. We didn't get the time to speak to it, but I, I have another thing for you, Sush, that I'm co-founder of another company that I'm not very active operationally, but it's called Prio. And it's basically a B2B platform that helps companies beat failure. And it fits a lot into what you're, what you're saying and finding the right starting point, something to unpack maybe to get in a round two of this conversation. Uh, I think a success mindset versus a beat failure mindset is very interesting where you basically flip it upside down and have tremendous results. We'd love to tap into that a little bit. Like how do we make these decisions? successful and sustainably successful yeah it, it, you just got my mind racing on the, the types of challenges we set up for or help organizations set up for themselves so that they can attract the right answers and that archetype and, and the perspective they bring to it really does matter if people are really looking for results they get them if they're really looking to tick a box or do kind of DEI theater or whatever then they get that but it really depends on what is it that they're coming to us with. I, I would love to follow up. I think we we could spend a couple of hours just exchanging notes on what we've learned and maybe even start a thing or two together afterwards and rope in Donna and other friends along the way. Brilliant. Thanks to you both. My instinct was that you both had a lot of overlap. There's a lot of richness in your experiences and a lot of richness between your experiences as well with what you're doing. Thank you both very much for just agreeing to jump on and just see what happens. Thank you. It was the best part of my day. Thanks very much for, for the opportunity. And Kelly, I'll be, I'll follow up with you after. Sounds good.
Decisions made today are often more complex than people fully appreciate. So the opportunity to augment our decision-making process with crowdsourcing, with collective intelligence is perfect timing. I hope we don't take five to 10 years to get this figured out because I think a number of companies will go down because of that. There's a need to adapt not just our thinking, but also our practices and our habits. And decision-making is probably one of the most unconscious habits we have every day. Most people are not aware of when they are making a decision, much less how the context that you're operating in changes how you make the decision. So we have a lot of opportunity here. I hope we take it. I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode. It was a fun experiment. And thanks to uh, both Sushan and Kelly for jumping in. My name is Donna Jones. My work involves seeing underneath what you see on the surface to pinpoint the dynamics that are both blocking and or supporting what you're trying to accomplish. I welcome your calls on issues you're dealing with. We'll put them in a learning lab and see what solutions we can collectively come up together. You can find me on LinkedIn at D-A-W-N-A-H Jones, on Twitter at E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones. Find my writing on Medium. I'm the author of Decision Making for Dummies. I have chapters in a couple of other books, three other books, I guess now. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Thanks for joining me. 